At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Last time on Dark Topic. All that she can see is the man's smile in her mind. That dead smile. Like a skeleton's grin, she finally realizes. Then she's pushed into the building through a hole in its side. And the world goes black. It's in the summer of 71 that investigators back in California, at a loss as to where Rodney Alcala has resurfaced, managed to get his face on the FBI's most wanted list. Rodney Alcala has flown back to California to face the music, leaving investigators in Queens, New York, scratching their heads over the discovery of a young airline stewardess who has been beaten, bitten, raped, strangled, then posed in her apartment. No signs of forced entry. Alcala pleads guilty to the charge of child molestation and on May the 9th, 1972, receives a sentence of 1 to 10 years. It's an indeterminate sentence, meaning that Alcala can begin appeals for parole as soon as he serves a year and likely earn release if he plays his cards right. Georgia Wickstead's mother learns of how hard her daughter died and is soon admitted to a mental institution where she spends the next year. Meanwhile, Rodney Alcala applies to be on a game show, The Dating Game. The dating capital of the world. It's The Dating Game. Here's the Star Wars Show, your host, Jim Lyon. Hey. Well, let's see. Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. <laughs> Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. Here is a young lady with a wealth of experience. She once earned a living massaging feet, but she quit when her boss suggested that she work her way up. Then she taught school in Phoenix, Arizona, and now she's here to educate our three bachelors in the art of amour. Welcome, if you will, sensational Cheryl Bradshaw. Bachelor number one. Yes. What's your best time? The best time is at night. Nighttime. Why do you say that? Because that's the only time there is. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Wednesday, September 13th, 1978. Backstage, the dating game set. Cheryl Bradshaw is getting to know bachelor number one, Rodney Alcala, the man she selected to be her date. The charm he'd exhibited from behind the stage partition is less endearing up close. He's creepy, something bachelor number two and three had picked up on before the show when Rodney had tried to tear the two of them down passive-aggressively, asking personal questions, then meanly ribbing the responses, playing mind games. The audience had picked up on something, too. The forced laughter heard off stage was 
accompanied by eye rolls and snickers. Alcala's sociopathic charms were not as potent as he believed, but still, it was enough to fool a child or a young woman swept up by the attentions of a snapping camera. Lucky for Miss Bradshaw, she followed her instincts and refused to date Alcala. Here is a quote from her CNN interview in 2010. Quote, He was quiet, but at the same time he would interrupt and impose when he felt like it. He became very unlikable and rude and imposing as though he was trying to intimidate. I wound up not only not liking this guy, he was a standout creep in my life. Instincts are easier to follow when given some time to hear them out. Unfortunately, more often than not, we must decide on the spot whether or not to follow them. Like an antelope slowly bringing its tongue to the water, convincing itself that there will be time to pull back, we tend to lean forward while calculating risk. Usually there is time. Time to scurry away when a bubble floats to the surface, betraying the crocodile who lurks beneath. But should you decide to test the water, you better be certain, for if you're not, the next inch given could turn into a mile. A long, torturous mile spent with your head clamped between the teeth of a beast, spinning insanely as the world steps back and wonders what became of you. In the summer before Alcala's dating game appearance, June 24, 1978, Charlotte Lamb, a 32-year-old student from Ohio, who had been studying in California and loving life, is discovered miles from her residence after having disappeared the previous evening. She was last seen on the dance floor of Moody's Nightclub in Santa Monica, a known haunt of a journeyman reptile named Rodney. A tenant of an El Segundo apartment complex makes the grizzly fine while attempting to get some laundry done. The chore most certainly had to be completed elsewhere, as the building's common area was soon swarming with investigators, the washers and dryers inaccessible for days as their big, lone, reflective eyes looked on at the scene, a scene that featured the missing woman, naked, bound, and posed, a shoelace wrapped tight around her neck, the sneaker still attached like a sad medallion. Contusions and bite marks covered the body, lacerations and tears to the genitals, Multiple ligature marks around the throat indicating Cheryl had been strangled more than once. She died face down, but was posed face up, waiting for the harsh fluorescence of the laundry room to be switched on and reveal what had become of her. The Killing Machine loses a member of its maintenance crew when in early January of 1979, Kenneth Bianchi, one half of the Hillside Strangler duo, is captured, and soon after his buddy Angelo Bono goes down as well. Rodney Alcala can no longer rely on his murders being mistaken for the Strangler, even though Bianchi attempts to keep the killings going while imprisoned. He hands a star-struck pen pal and pretty young actress, Veronica Compton, a sample of his semen contained in a plastic glove during visitation, and Veronica soon plots to strangle and plant the DNA on a fresh victim, in a ridiculous attempt to fool authorities into believing the hillside strangler was still on the loose. Fortunately, there will be no more victims, as Veronica botches the attempted murder and is left literally holding the bag. February 13, 1979, Pasadena, California. Monique Hoyt, a 15-year-old runaway, is picked up by Alcala while hitchhiking, 
Rodney takes a shine to the bright young girl and decides not to destroy her immediately. He drives to his mother's house, in fact, where he still has his own private entrance and room. It's late and the young lady is tired. Rodney decides to leave her be and save the fun for the morning. It turns out nighttime isn't the only time there is after all. But in this case, Alcala may have just been ensuring he had a date for Valentine's Day. The sun rises on February 14th of 79 and the odd couple head out to take photos. Alcala has convinced Monique that he's going to enter images of her in a competition of sorts. They drive out into the mountains and find a deserted area to snap some shots. It's a lovely day and Monique is enamored by the handsome older man. She barely thinks twice when he suggests she pull her shirt over her face to take a goofy pic. A moment later, Monique isn't thinking at all as she's unconscious. The result of having been bashed over the head with a tree branch. There's no time to wonder what happened as she swims back to consciousness. All power of thought is focused on what's being done to her now. She's being raped. Brutally. Her instincts tell her to play dead, and she does for a while. But the sadistic tactics of her abuser soon make it impossible to stifle a scream. <coughs> Alcala chokes the girl back into oblivion, then ties her up. He can go for hours like this, edging his victim's death while edging his own release. But then, something strange happens. He looks down at the bound, beaten, and completely helpless young woman, and something about the situation causes him to burst into tears. There are many things it should be, considering the circumstances. But it's certainly not anything to do with pity for the girl. Most likely Alcala is feeling sorry for himself, as Monique gasps and wakes up to a nightmare. The sharp young lady immediately assesses the situation and begins to work. She tells Rodney that it's okay, that he got carried away and it's not his fault. She begs him not to tell anyone, apologizes for causing his outburst, says she just wants to go back to his house and hang out. She appeals not to his heart, as he does not possess one. She appeals to his ego. And it works. Alcala unties the girl while wiping tears from his eyes and helps her back to his vehicle. They then head to an In-N-Out to grab lunch. Rodney's so convinced that young Monique Hoyt is in his possession that he leaves her alone while using the bathroom. Monique uses the opportunity she so brilliantly afforded herself to run across the street to a gas station and call the police. The end. <laughs> Akala is arrested and processed for the brutal rape and assault. One month later, he's released on $10,000 bail, paid for by his mother. A trial date is set for September, but that's six months away. He's a free man with a fresh summer approaching, and he plans on making the most of it. You start a conversation, you can't even finish it. You talk a lot, but you're not saying anything. I had nothing to say. My lips are sealed. Say something once. I say it again Psycho killer It's a sin At 22 years old 
Jill Parenteau truly must have felt, and literally had, her whole life in front of her. She'd recently been promoted to a supervisor position at Technobilt, a manufacturer of shopping carts located in Burbank, and was taking classes on the side towards a major in business at Pasadena City College. She'd recently moved from her family home in Eagle Rock and had found an apartment closer to work in Burbank. In her spare time, she enjoyed hanging out with friends in Pasadena, frequenting a drinking hole named the Handlebar Saloon. This is all so familiar to many of us, I'm sure. At 22 years old, you're just beginning to realize that your youth is over and it's time to get your shit somewhat together. At the same time, an unexpected wave of freedom washes over you as you realize you're on your own now. Sure, those dishes aren't washing themselves and the lights could get shut off if you don't get up for work. But when the day is done, you get to come home to your place. If you want, you can head out and blow off some steam in a character-soaked bar that you're beginning to consider your spot. The most magical parts of life lay in the transitions. And for Jill Parento, I'm certain she felt there was plenty of magic waiting for her down life's road. Even though something had been bothering her lately. The phone calls. Obscene calls she had started to receive, not coincidentally after having rebuked the advances of a curly-haired photographer at the Handlebar Saloon a week or so ago. On the evening of June 13, 1979, Jill went to a Dodgers game with a friend. They watched as their home team rang up nine runs by the fourth inning. Statistics say they were surrounded by 42,000 other spectators, cheering, drinking, and cracking peanuts. The action died down through the fifth, sixth, and seventh innings, affording time for one to just soak up the mass of congregated humanity, to people watch and giggle with a friend. Time to look at the lights, the sky. Time to feel a part of something even if while watching grown men in funny outfits pour their focus into the movement of a small piece of cork bound in yarn and wrapped in leather. A silly circumstance when broken down, but doesn't everything seem silly and useless once you dismantle it? I wonder what Rodney would say to that. Once they died, once he'd used them up, did it seem silly and useless what he'd taken for what he'd gained? All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zippics are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zippix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zippics have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zippix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zippixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older. 
to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix, nicotine toothpicks. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The Cardinals came back and scored seven runs at the top of the ninth to close the score. Nine-eight Dodgers was the final. The game had it all, and Jill headed home, tired, slightly tipsy no doubt and ready to crash. The following morning, when she failed to show up for work, Jill's family and friends called each other in a panic, knowing full well that Jill wasn't the type to blow off her responsibilities. A group of Jill's loved ones arrived at her apartment, and when they received no answer to their knocking, they broke in. What they didn't notice was that the light bulb at the top of the landing had been unscrewed, that a screen had been cut, and a window removed. The previous night, After returning from the ball game, Jill had walked up these apartment stairs, shrouded in darkness, and opened her door onto hell. Alcala, after no doubt terrifying, then brutally raping, choking, biting, and eventually stabbing Jill Parento to death, had posed her. Posed her bound, face up, and naked on her bed her head and shoulders propped up by pillows, and after snapping some photos, had left the scene for her family and friends to find. Not intentionally, but I'm certain this news pleased him. This news helped him answer the question as to whether or not what he did was useless. And to a man like Rodney Alcala, the greater impact an action has, the greater it's worth. So the question of what he'd taken for what he'd gained, of... If it had been worth it, the answer, no doubt, would be a resounding yes. Seeing how, to a sadistic killing machine at least, this particular crime reaped exponential returns and pain doled out. Not like the many he'd captured and released, the many, of whom he held only their images, piled like a collection of family photos in his storage locker, the mystery women of which, just like a stack of baseball cards, may contain rarities unknown victims, still remembered by their loved ones, remembered by Alcala, who to this day keeps secret the young bodies he captured only with his lens, and those he decided would lose their soul when the light hit them just right. Frames without pictures of women We see them scattered on family walls Photos by men who took them He hunted and captured and posed them all. They were only models. Dolls to take, toys to break against the wall. The sisters sleep in his lockers. Their smiles burned in a dark room. The daughters dipped in water. Drowned and died, exposed in blue. 
June 20th, 1979, Huntington Beach, California. 12-year-old Robin Samso and her best friend Bridget are playing in the sand, wasting a little time, doing cartwheels, looking around, giggling at just about everything, the way young girls do. The man who approaches seems entirely out of place, with his slacks, plaid shirt, and camera. He asks the girls if they'd like their photos taken, for a contest and begins to set up a tripod before they can answer with anything other than nervous smiles and titters. A neighbor of Bridget's is observing this as she suns herself a little further down the beach. When the man begins to direct the girls to pose, she yells out to Bridget, and the man immediately gathers his equipment and scurries away. Twelve-year-old Robin has a job. Her mother had been in an accident and could no longer afford to finance her daughter's ballet classes. So Robin had taken on work as the studio's receptionist, in exchange for lessons. A few minutes after the overdressed photographer steals away like a spooked thief, Robin realizes that she's running late due to all the distraction. Bridget offers for a friend to use her bike. Robin accepts and pedals away from the beachfront, thanking her friend over her shoulder. The last interaction they will ever have. The last person to see Robin Sampso alive was not Bridget. It was, of course, Rodney Alcala. But before he coaxed the 12-year-old into his vehicle, using their previous interaction as leverage, and drove her out to a remote area in the hills, someone other than Alcala or Robin's best friend will have had a glimpse of the young girl, a forestry firefighter, while patrolling the hills, looking for any threat of a potential blaze, witnessed a man forcefully steering a blonde girl down a mountain pass. She did not stop or report the strange scene, the first of a few major fuck-ups on the forestry worker's end, born from cowardice, in my opinion. Unfortunately, there are many who get involved in public services positions for the main purpose of having imbued upon them an aura of bravery, a trait that they don't necessarily possess in any way other than the assumed impression those that they inform of their career choice feel they should have of them. There are cowards who want to feel brave or be perceived as brave that gravitate towards becoming police officers, firefighters, etc. There are also control freaks, but that train of thought can be derailed for another story, perhaps. Unfortunately for Robin Samso, one of these public servants, the type who shows up to school with a fake bulletproof vest on, the type who has fabricated or embellished stories of heroism banked to use as munition to garner the fawning appears around dinner tables and drinking circles, happened to be in a position where she could have intervened and completely chickened out. Robin's mother receives a phone call from the ballet studio around 5.30 p.m. Robin is yet to appear for work. Does she know where she is? She, of course, does not, and, knowing how important the job and the lessons are to her daughter, begins making phone calls. It's not long before she learns from Bridget about the strange encounter with the photographer earlier in the day, and immediately calls police. As night falls, investigators begin looking into the disappearance of Robin Sampso. Bridget is brought in to help create a composite drawing of the man they'd encountered on the beach. Three days later, on June the 23rd of 1979, this image appears in newspapers and on local television stations. Rodney Alcala sees its frightening likeness to him and immediately makes an appointment to have his hair permed straight. The consummate narcissist, he can't bring himself to part with his luscious locks only to alter them. 
on June the 25th, five days into the search for Robin Samso. The forestry firefighter finally decides she should go check out the area where she had seen the man roughly guiding a little blonde girl into. I failed to mention that later that same day, she had seen the man again, this time alone, looking dirty and disheveled as he approached a lonely Datsun, which is a pretty compelling detail. Anyways, she's finally bothered enough by the reports of a missing blonde-haired girl that she heads out to check the area and discovers the remains of a little girl. The body had been ravaged by wildlife. Naturally, the forestry worker heads back to her barracks and keeps the discovery to herself. Naturally. It's one of the most mind-boggling pieces of information I've ever come across. Infuriating. I know why she kept it quiet, to protect herself from the shame of having not reported her initial concerns. But I mean, you didn't do it. You stupid fucking... Christ, you didn't... You're not the one who fucking killed her, you idiot. Meanwhile, the walls are closing in on Alcala, despite his latest victim's body, still laying in the woods unreported, a crime scene of which animals are tromping all over, and eating evidence. A handful of law enforcement and parole officers, as well as good old Donald Haynes, whose instinct saved another little girl years previous, call in their suspicions of Rodney Alcala being the man in the composite drawing. Alcala has cut his hair a little shorter now, but it doesn't matter. His trademark bouffant has already betrayed him. Surveillance begins. Meanwhile, our forestry worker comes across the scattered bones of Robin Samso again, this time with a partner, who she has likely led this way to help discover the remains and finally raise the alarm. He spots a bone, but mistakes it for that of a deer, and to his partner's dismay, picks it up, then tosses it further into the brush. She says nothing. It's not until July the 2nd, a week since her grisly discovery, that the forestry worker leads her partner back to the area, and this time they come across a skull. The authorities are finally called. Robin Samso's mother anxiously waits to hear if the body is that of her daughter. She can't understand why it's taking so long to identify her. She has blonde hair. She's a little girl with blonde hair. How many of those are lying dead in the woods? The horror almost strikes her to the floor when she's told the hard truth that there is no hair, that only a skeleton remains. By July 24th of 79, Authorities finally believe they have enough in Alcala to take him down. Armed with a search warrant, they raid his mother's home at 5 a.m. and discover their quarry, naked and in bed. He dresses himself at gunpoint and is whisked away for questioning. The search turns up handcuffs, ropes, and a leather bullwhip. In the driveway sits his vehicle, a Datsun. The shag carpet interior appears to have been replaced recently, but maybe, most interesting of all, they find a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle. Two days later, in said storage locker, investigators uncover a mother load of photographs, endless images of women in compromising positions. Some look concerned, some straight up terrified. They find film and slides, one labeled Tally VA Rape, and another Ode to New York John Berger. They discover a red coin purse that's full of earrings, 
two of which Robin Samso's mother recognized as her own, as the pair her daughter had borrowed from her the day she went missing. Rodney Alcala is arraigned for kidnapping, murder, robbery, and lewd acts against a child under 14. Bail is denied, and he is granted a public defender. Robin Samso's mother attends every day of the trial. She sits defiantly in the front row, where Alcala often turns to her and covertly winks or blows her a kiss from time to time. Security clearly wasn't too tight in 1980, as she has a gun in her purse and somehow resists using it. The forestry firefighter continues to screw around with her story, making her a poor witness. Unfortunate, as she saw a man exactly matching Alcala's description enter a Datsun, after having led a little girl matching Robin's exact description into an area where her remains would later be found. Still, there was plenty to go on, and by April 30th of 1980, the jury is ready to hand down their decision. Alcala is found guilty of first-degree murder and forcible kidnapping. The recommended punishment is death, and on May 7th, that is the sentence that is handed down. Robin Samso's mother screams out, there's a celebration in the seats, but the victory will be short-lived. Two months later, the California Supreme Court reverses the conviction, as it's found that the jury was improperly informed of Alcala's prior sex crimes. A second trial date is set, and the Samso family is forced back into the courtroom, where Alcala continues to taunt and blow kisses their way. Meanwhile, the known crimes of Rodney Alcala are beginning to pile up. It's starting to become clear that he'll never walk free again, but he proves to be adept at dragging things out. Despite being retried and again sentenced to death in the case of Robin Samso on June the 20th of 1986, he is not put to death and hangs around until when in 2001 this second conviction is overturned, as it's found that Alcala unfairly wasn't allowed to present some sort of evidence. There's a reason I don't cover the court side of things. Uh, it's because it's always such a fucking mess. <laughs> DNA has been tying Alcala to a plethora of crimes, many that I've covered here. His game plan, as always, is to deny, appeal, deny, appeal. He's relentless and without mercy for what he's doing to the victim's families. This is his new kink, perhaps. He's having fun. He even decides to try his hand at defending himself, a decision of which allows him to question his own victims. A complete disgrace. In 2016, Alcala has moved from his cell on San Quentin's death row into a medical unit outside of Fresno. He knows now that he'll never be free. Convictions in New York have him looking at 25 years there. If by some miracle he's ever released from the California justice system, he knows now that he'll never be free. He's an old man, haggard, unwell. His toenails are long and stick out from under the sheets of his prison bed that sits in a puke-peach room behind numerous locked doors. The paint on the walls is peeling. Flies bounce against the windows, exhausting the dreary scene even more somehow. This description comes from a prosecutor and detectives who arrived to interview the now at his service killing machine. A photo is placed before Alcala, and his eyes light up. It's one of the women from his locker. She sits on a motorcycle. The detectives and prosecutor watch intently as the old serial killer, now 40 years behind bars, reaches out to the photo and begins tracing the image with his index finger, then begins to tap it, slowly at first, 
and then faster, and with more intensity. The men look to one another, hopeful they are about to secure an admission of guilt. But it never comes. Dark Topic is an 11:59 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com/darktopicpod. For merch or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com.